Right, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here at Sycamore. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing our journey through some of the parables that Jesus gave us in the Gospel of Luke. This morning we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. But before we get there, um, it's printed for you on page 10 in the ESV translation. And then boys and girls who are going to stay here and not go to kids' church, uh, you have your own version there on page, on page 11. We'll be referring to that. You want to keep that handy for you today. So Jesus told this series of stories called parables. Parable comes from the word, kind of just means a throw. So Jesus kind of just threw these out here as stories to try to help people understand deeper meanings that he's trying uh, to give them. And so before we jump into Luke 10, which is a very familiar parable, I kind of want to get us in the right mindset. I want to take you back to the 1990s, that magical decade. Um, at least, you know, if you're a Gen Xer, it is. Um, a magical decade, and there's a great movie that came out called Greedy. Anybody remember this movie? Okay, Uncle Joe there in the middle is like filthy, stinking rich. And his family of sycophants, they just want the cash. They want the money. So he creates this elaborate ruse to try to figure out who actually loves him versus who just wants to use him to get the good life. I highly recommend it. It's a clean movie. You'll enjoy it. You'll laugh a lot. Very fun. And I bring that up because we're going to see a very similar test today that Jesus does. A religious expert rises up and challenges Jesus. He assumes that his moral purity, that his ritualistic performance is enough to earn an inheritance from God, to get the good life. And Jesus challenges this expert's assumptions about God and about himself. And so with that introduction, would you please rise, as is our tradition here, for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. <clears throat> and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said back to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him. And departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we pray you would open this text up to us by your spirit, that you would give us growth, give us transformation. Lord, may we see our great need of you. And then may we see the great answer to our need in the gospel of Jesus. 
But Father, draw us closer to you this morning. Convict us and change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So the parable last week was all about our relationships with others. How until we're changed on the inside, until we feel what our culture calls enough, we live competitive lives of judging others. This famous story today continues in the same vein. A very good, a very religious person wants to test Jesus. But Jesus turns the tables on him and causes him to doubt, revealing his own hang-ups. Because he basically asks the question, how will I know that I'm enough? That is the question that we and our neighbors ask constantly. We may not articulate it, but it's there, isn't it? When will I finally feel like enough, like I'm valuable, like I'm secure, like I'm worthy? When will, I, when will this imposter syndrome finally go away from me and actually feel like a grown-up? And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Jesus confirms it. We are not enough, but in Him we can be. So we're going to see three things here today that when we ask if we are enough, Jesus reminds us of what's enough And he gives us the hope of being made enough. So it starts out with the question of, am I enough? It begins with an expert in the Mosaic law. They call uh, him a lawyer in the text. Really think of him more like a PhD in the Old Testament. So Jesus is teaching. This guy stands up to challenge Jesus. And by standing, Middle Eastern scholars throughout the ages have pointed out, this guy is not only insulting and challenging Jesus, he's kind of um, taunting him at the same time. So this lawyer is confronting and taunting Jesus. So here's Jesus long before social media getting trolled IRL. You ever had anybody do that to you? You ever been taunted? You ever been mocked? Jesus gets you. He has too. And this guy literally asks in the original, having made it, will I inherit eternal life? See, he starts out, I've arrived, so tell me what I get. Now, to an ancient Near Eastern mind, we've got to kind of undo some of our, pre- our, our assumptions and get us back to a biblical mindset. The concept of eternal life, yes, it's ongoing, but the emphasis was on the quality of that life, not just the longevity of it. It was, a, it was the idea that there would be no more pain, no more suffering. Life would just work out. There would be no more trials. You'd be happy. You'd be rewarded, and that would be ongoing. They wanted that good life. <laughs> and right before this event... Jesus rejoices out loud that God reveals himself not to proud experts, but to the hurting, earnest seekers. And so in response, this proud expert stands up and is like, hold on a minute. If I were to translate his question into our vernacular, it would be, come on, Jesus. Aren't I enough to get the good life from God? I mean, look at me. See, when we put it that way, he's kind of talking our language a little bit, isn't he? See, our culture is obsessed with being enough to merit a good life. Have I earned enough? Have I achieved enough? Have I got enough status? Have I proven my value yet again? Will you like me? In case you're not tracking with me, we as a congregation, we read this book a year ago together called Seculosity by David Zaw. And in that, he says this about this concept of being enough. He says, we believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be 
enough. Boys and girls, make sure you're tracking with Pastor Sean here. I want you to think about if you've had this experience. Think of your first day at a new school, if you've had that experience. Some of you have had that more than others. You don't have any friends yet. You don't really know what you're supposed to do. You don't know who you're going to play with at recess. You don't know where you're going to sit at lunch, which can can change the whole course of your life. See, inside what you're doing at that point, you're asking, will anybody like me enough to be my friend? Will anybody like me enough to help me fit in? Let's look at your verse 25, boys and girls, together. It's on page 11. Here's, Here's how I put his question for you. Since you're such an expert, don't you think people like me have done enough for God to give us a good life? You know what, boys and girls, mom and dad ask that exact same question all the time. Whenever they go to something new, they're asking, will, will anyone here like me enough to let me in? Pastor Sean asked that question too. We all want to feel liked and feel enough, and that's what this is getting to. So Jesus wants to help him, so Jesus gives him an unexpected answer. He says he wants to justify himself in verse 29. He doesn't expect Jesus' answer. He feels insecure. The word justify there is the idea of being proven right, being proven correct, having good standing. In other words, being enough, fitting in, being one of them. This man was all of a sudden, he wanted confirmation that he really was enough. You know, our culture exerts tremendous pressure on us to be enough. You may not use that term, but you feel it. You know it. I want you to think about right now in your life. Where are you tired? Where are you worn out? What's that area of your life that even thinking about just makes you feel heavy? That's probably an area of your life where you're trying to justify yourself. Where you're trying to make yourself feel valuable, worthy, important. You've earned your life at least for another day or two. You're trying to prove that you're lovable. You're trying to be enough from that area. That's our culture. And we all know we're wired that way. I was talking just this week to one of our singles. And this person confessed that they feel that if they just had a romantic partner... That if someone actually cared enough for them to be in a relationship with them, they would feel better about their life. They would have less insecurity. They would feel enough. And to their credit, before I could even put my pastor hat on, they immediately admitted, I know, I know, I know that in the gospel, Jesus should be all of those things to me. I know that. But I just don't have that visceral fulfillment of those things in the gospel. I wish I did. They want to be enough. And can I just say to you singles in our church, um, when we have many of you, there's, that's not unique uh, to being outside of a relationship. Those feelings are not unique to being unmarried. Too many married people, in fact, bring all of that junk to their marriage, and they get this other person like, yes, you can make me be enough. And no other human can carry that weight. And so you end up looking to this person to fulfill you, to be your life's purpose, to be your life's goal, to make you feel lovely and valuable, and you can't, no one person can stand up under that load. And so many marriage problems start from that fundamental issue of this person makes me be enough, and they can't take the weight. See, Jesus wants to help us get out of all of that. So instead of falling for this expert's trap, And answering the question of, am I enough? Jesus turns the tables on him. And and in response to that question, Jesus asks him, well, what is enough? What does it take to get a good life from God? You tell me. What does the manual say? See, the Old Testament presents itself as an instruction manual. 
for humanity. And verse 27 is a quote of the Old Testament's own summary of God's instructions. So let's look at that together. Let's look at verse 27 together. What does it say? It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What does the Old Testament say? What's the instruction manual say? Love God and love your neighbor completely with your whole being. It's a radical command. And to be candid, that summary is supposed to cause us to despair. The bar is set so high that people should read it and then fall down before God and beg for mercy, and they'll find it. See, but here's the rub. The religious leaders in Jesus' time, they really thought they could do it. I mean, notice how easily the guy just throws away the first part. He doesn't even question that. He assumes, oh yeah, I love God my entire being without fail all the time. Got that. Now this neighbor thing, this is a little, let's, let's talk about this. He just assumes he's got that part down. That's why Jesus comes back and answers him with a very theologically exact answer. He says, yes, if you fully obey God's law without fail, you will earn eternal life. Good luck. See, the guy's question back in verse 29 betrays his heart. He's not concerned about loving God. He assumes he has that, but he does try to make this whole loving neighbors thing a little more manageable. So what he does is he hopes to make some people into the category of not neighbor, right? You know, the difficult people. You know, those neighbors that just like, oh, please, can we just like not love them, Jesus, maybe? Here's how he put it for the boys and girls to make sure we all got this. Let's look at verse 29 in the children's translation. It says this, it says, but the expert felt very unsure of himself. And so he said to Jesus, I can't love everybody like that. Who's really my neighbor? You see, boys and girls, here's, here's what's going on. It's like kale. Okay, kale. You know what kale is, right? Kale is a superfood. And according to one comedian, it's superpowers, tasting bad. But it's so good for you, right? So your parents put this pile of kale in front of you, boys and girls. And they're like, you need to eat this. And what do you, what do you say? The whole thing? I got to eat it all? That's exactly what this guy says to Jesus. All of my neighbors? The whole lot of them? I got to love them all? Have you met Gary? Really? I got to love Gary? See, the real problem is in his heart. And his question betrays how he truly views God and how he truly views others. Here's what I mean by that. So our denomination is we're a confessional church. And what that means is that we subscribe to a confession of faith. We have the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Longer Catechism. And these are doctrinal interpretations of the scriptures that I as a pastor and Marty as a pastor, we have to agree to them. And should we find ourselves all of a sudden not agreeing to them, we have to go tell our authorities. And they're like, well, we love you. You can't be a pastor here anymore. You know, so big deal. So one of the questions in our catechism, which is a series of questions and answers, is the question of what is God? And the answer, I won't won't put anybody on the spot, the answer is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's a very historical answer. It's an answer that's very faithful to the Bible, but it's the wrong question. You're sitting down to have coffee with someone you just want to get to know. Hope to have a, maybe a friendship or relationship with them. And they sit down, they take a sip of coffee, you take a sip of coffee, and you look at them and you go, what are you? Is that, is that the question we ask? No, what do we ask? 
Who are you? Tell me about yourself. And so, too, the question is not what is God. The question the Bible is answering is who is God? It's the wrong question. And so, too, the guy here asks the wrong question. See, Jesus indicates you should be asking how can I be a good neighbor instead of asking how can I get rid of some neighbors? How can I disqualify some people from being neighbors? It's the wrong question. That's why Jesus tells a story about being a good neighbor rather than identifying who is a neighbor. So what I want to do at this point, I want to run through the children's version of this story to to get our minds around the way that they would have heard it themselves. So we'll have this on slides for you. Again, it's also on page 11. We're going to start there at verse 30. Just read the next couple verses. So Jesus told him this story. So a guy was coming home from church through a bad neighborhood, and he got robbed. They took his money and his clothes and beat him. They thought he was dead, and so they left him there. Now the pastor of his church drove by, and when he saw the guy, he sped past as fast as he could. Then the worship leader for his church also saw the guy and drove by without stopping. But then a person wearing an atheist rule t-shirt drives by the guy, and he feels sorry for him. He got out of his car, bandaged the man's wounds. Then he set this bleeding guy on his leather seats and drove him to a hotel to care for him. The next day, he gave the hotel his credit card and said, give him whatever he needs to get better. All right, let me justify this version to you real quickly. So from Jerusalem to Jericho means all three Jewish characters had been at the temple in worship and they were coming back. The Jewish law was clear, not Old Testament, Jewish law, that you did not touch or help non-Jews. And you especially didn't touch dead bodies, like ever. If the priest helps this man, he's unclean ritualistically, so, which means he's temporarily suspended from his job leading worship. He's unable to provide for his family for a few weeks. And once his probation period is over, he then has to spend the money to purchase a cow slaughter it and go through a whole bunch of ritualistic rites and ceremonies to get himself back into the priestly rotation. It's a really costly career move for him, and so he doesn't engage this man. The Levite has all the same issues, except priests had jobs. Levites were like the unpaid interns, so they had no money whatsoever. Plus, How well does it go in your company if your boss ignores a major problem, but the unpaid intern makes a big deal and makes sure everybody knows about that problem? Yeah, exactly. The Levite's like, I'm not showing up my boss, and I can't afford this, so he walks right on by as well. Because their religious duties, their career concerns, kept them from engaging another person with compassion. But a total outsider... I'm not going to get into all the historical reasons. You can Google this and look it up yourself. The Samaritans were the wrong people. They were hated. They were an ethnic minority. They were a religious minority. And they were hated for both of those reasons. So this guy pops up and says, I'll do it. He has compassion. This guy who's the wrong tribe, he does what the religious leaders won't do. He has compassion. And right before this in Luke's gospel, Luke used this exact word, compassion, to describe how God feels about widows and orphans. So if you're sitting down for the first time reading the gospel in the original, you would immediately think, oh, the Samaritan's acting like God. He's being compassionate. And just like God, compassion's not just a sentiment. It's not just an emotion. There's action towards rescue. There's action towards healing. The Samaritan administers first aid. He risks his life by going into the city to take care of this man. 
I've often missed this as I've read this story. If you've been around church world, you've heard this story. I missed this. There's a Middle Eastern missionary. His name is Kenneth Bailey. Spent his life as a minister in the Middle East. He points out this. He says, you know, a Samaritan would not be safe in a Jewish town with a wounded Jew over the back of his riding animal. A community vengeance may be enacted against a Samaritan even if he has saved the life of the Jew. So I, I didn't think about that. This guy walks in. He's a hated minority. What are you doing with one of our guys wounded on your animal? All of a sudden, mob justice. He risks all that. At the same time, if you couldn't pay a bill, they could sell you into slavery to get that bill paid. So not only does the Samaritan keep the man out of slavery, he puts his freedom on the line for the man. This is an overwhelming picture of costly, sacrificial love to a stranger by an enemy. I mean, the religious expert who asked Jesus the question at this point must be looking at Jesus open mouth, going, I gotta eat the whole pile of kale? You seriously? That's what it takes to be enough? That's what it takes? See, the narrative has put us in this position like, I can't be that way. It's moved from am I enough to what's enough, and it ends with the question of being made enough. Because if you're tracking with me, there's not a lot of hope here. You may be wondering, where is the hope? I mean, because Jesus wants to take the expert and us. He wants to get us to a point of despair at ever being enough. Because you realize that the Christian story is true. If what the Bible teaches about humanity is true, then we are hardwired for instructions. The Old Testament word is Torah. We often translate it law. It really means instructions. So I mean, the Bible presents itself kind of like the owner's manual for your car. Right? It's, it's here is what it takes to run this thing well. And if that's true, then we are always looking for something to grab onto, say, this is what, how I organize my life. If I jump through these hoops, if I obey these principles, if I follow this system, I'll have a good life. We're always looking for that because we're wired to do that. And that becomes a new law that bears down on us and drives us crazy because it never makes us feel enough. So Hillsong is a worldwide religious movement of churches started in Australia, but they're, they're all, over, uh, all over the world. They've been in the news for some bad stuff recently, but a couple years ago they were in the news because their worldwide worship leader publicly renounced his faith. He just didn't believe any of it, and it made all big news. And he, he kind of released this kind of very wordy, rambling statement with all of his reasons, but he ended with something really profound. He ended by saying this, just kind of in frustration. He goes, I don't know. Just love each other unconditionally. You catch that. Even as he's rejecting Christianity, he can't avoid the impulse to be righteous and to try to give people a law to follow, to conform to a law. So he denies his faith, but he says, do this instead. Jump through these hoops. And he gives us a standard almost higher than what Jesus gives us here. Just love people unconditionally. Everything will be fine. Well, I was like, well, thanks, Hoss. If we could do that, don't you think we'd be doing that already? You see, Jesus wants us to get into a hopeful despair, which says, it is not in me to be like the Samaritan. And if that's what it takes to get eternal life, I have no hope. I can't do that. 
I have no hope of ever inheriting eternal life. There was a show on television. I can't believe it lasted this long. It was on major network television. It was called The Good Place, one of the most philosophically robust shows to be on television ever. And it, it stars these, this group of people who are in the bad place, and they call it that, the bad place, and they're always trying to get to the good place. And on their quest, they end up converting sort of this demon, who's, Ted Danson's character, who starts to help them on their journey. And they find this guy on their quest to get to the good place who's always trying to do the right thing. He's even so conscientious that he avoids stepping on bugs. And when he does accidentally kill a bug, he'll take the body, he'll bury it, and he'll make a little grave, and he'll have a little service for it. And he shows them his bug graveyard to show how righteous and how conscientious he is. And they're all super impressed. Like, this guy's got to know how to get to the good place. And the demon character, Ted Danson, looks at him in a show on network television and goes, that's not enough to get to the good place. You can't earn your way to the good place. It's like, whoa, what, what just happened? And so too, Jesus tells this expert here, you can't do enough to get to the good place. Instead, you have to let go and admit that you cannot be enough. See, the right response to this story is not to bring our culture's pressure to be enough from out there and say, okay, I'll bring that in here and I'll just do all the church stuff with a lot of gusto and then I'll be enough, right? If I attend enough, if I volunteer enough, if I sing enough, if I give enough, whatever, then it'll work. Is that what you're telling me? No. We're supposed to get to this point in the story and just admit, I cannot be this way. I never feel like I'm enough. And that's where the gospel comes in. Until we get real about not being enough, until we admit that we never feel that way and we're exhausted from trying, we'll never seek real help. See, and relief starts here in this story by identifying with the right character. I mean, if you've been in church world more than about 27 seconds, you've heard about the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And it's almost always a do better talk, right? Because after all, you're supposed to be like the Samaritan, right? That's the point of the story. No! The Samaritan is not your character in the story. We aren't him. We are the beaten, broken person, dead in our trespasses and sins, abandoned by people in our pain, completely beaten up and robbed by the promises of our culture, left for dead with nothing we can do, and it often appears that traditional religion just passes us by. See, in answer to the question of when am I enough to get eternal life, Jesus says never. But what Jesus shows us in this story is that he is the good Samaritan. He doesn't offer formulas. He doesn't offer rituals. He doesn't offer behavior modification. He takes our pain. He takes our suffering onto himself. And he does whatever it takes to heal us and to restore us. In the gospel, we get Jesus as our good Samaritan. And that Jesus, the real Jesus of Scripture, helps us make sense of the junk in the world that causes us to feel burdened. And he empowers us to be the people we wish we were. How does he help us make sense of the junk? Well, you may have heard of a 16th century pastor named Martin Luther. He talked about a theology of the cross or a contrary theology. That basically, instead of striving to be enough to earn and impress God, God's power and grace come to us through the contrary means. 
God's power comes through weakness. God's power comes through what seems like failure, what the New Testament calls the foolishness of the cross. See, and since God's power comes through what seems like weakness and failure rather than success and triumph, it frees us from always trying to win. It frees us from always trying to show our strengths and hide our weaknesses. It frees us from pushing people to think we're enough and to just admitting, I'm not, and I need help. I'm going to go out on a limb here and give you an example of this. Please don't throw anything at me. Justin Bieber. A couple years ago, Justin Bieber, who attends uh, Hillsong, by the way, in New York, came out and said that he was a Christian. And on his social media platforms, he started confessing his weaknesses, his failures, and his trials, and apologizing to his fans for that public persona and, and owning that reality. And this incredible thing started happening. Hundreds and then thousands of his fans started confessing the same thing on his social media feeds. It became this movement of them confessing their weaknesses, even so much, even a, a magazine like The Atlantic picked up on it and wrote an article on it. And the author in the article on The Atlantic, her mind was just blown. She says, you know, in an odd way, it appears that Bieber himself is taking comfort from owning his weaknesses. And he's trying to pass that comfort on. Again, Bieber, who says he's a Christian, he embraced weakness and he found strength instead of striving to be enough and finding frustration and failure. That's Martin Luther's theology of the cross. That's embracing the foolishness of the cross. He's living right in that Christian idea where our junk and our pain actually become the avenues of strength and life. Man, if you're struggling with feelings of failure... If you look at your life and you feel less than, you're a disappointment, you're weak, you are right there with Jesus, who so disappointed the thronging crowds that they called for his death. So embrace, neighbor up to the broken, abandoned, dying fool on the cross who offers us life through his weakness. Instead of feeling guilt and failure from living out of your own strength, that's the foolishness and weakness of the cross. And in that gospel, not only does life start to make sense, we're then empowered to compassion. We can be the neighbors Jesus does call us to be. Because Christianity is not that Jesus is this piece of trivia that fits into your, like, your philosophical Sudoku of life. Oh, I have all the answers. No, he's the resurrected Lord. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, as a real person, you are put into union with Jesus. And this amazing thing happens where God says, what is true of Jesus, I now make true of you. So my son is perfectly holy and righteous, and you are too, my dear daughter. My son is completely acceptable before me, and you are too, dear son. And that makes you enough. And what that means is that Jesus is able to be the Samaritan like this, and in him, you are too. See, we identify ourselves as that broken man, and then Jesus is the Samaritan. He gives everything to rescue us. And that realization that we're poor, broken, helpless, even dead, and that Jesus gives everything to save us, it changes us. Christians in the room today, 
This empowers us to see our non-Christian neighbors who have the different political sign than we do, not as adversaries or not of the wrong tribe, but as hurting and wounded by our culture, left for dead by sin. And knowing what Jesus did for us when we were like that, we then take Jesus to them. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, man, when you see that Jesus was your ultimate neighbor, it will empower you to be the compassionate person you wish you were. And if you really want to be that kind of person, if, if being compassionate to others is important to you, you should want the gospel to be true. Admit that you yourself need to be rescued first. And Jesus will save you and empower you to have that compassion. If you're worn out from striving to be enough, embrace the death of Jesus for you. Place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord and he will make you enough. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, even now, our task-oriented hearts don't want to believe this. We want to do, we want to strive, we want to earn, we want to perform, we want to show that we can do it. Lord, would you help us to see our weakness? And would you give us the strength to embrace Jesus yet again as he's offered in the gospel? Lord, I pray for those of us here who, who do know you already, would you please give us repentance that we might cease striving and know that you are God and rest in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. Lord, we pray for people here today who do not know you. Lord, we pray that you've brought people who are exhausted from trying so hard. Lord, we pray that you would open up their ears and their hearts to receive Jesus, that you'd be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. Would you do your work of salvation even now, Father, of drawing people from death to life? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.